adjusted with this. It's bugging me a little bit right now. We're good? All right. Here we go. Well, we are jumping into a new series this morning, but before I get started, um, I want to share a word that the Lord gave during our prayer time, and he since reinforced a couple of times. It was some, uh, one of the lines of the song, songs that we were singing earlier in regards to God calling dead things to life. Um, I didn't know that we, out of the grave, right? I didn't know we were actually singing that this morning, and, and I heard a word from the Lord during our prayer time about Lazarus coming forth and being called forth from the grave. By the way, what do I, what do I mean when I say a word? It's a, well, a prophetic word. We believe that the Holy Spirit will give us insight in a moment and, and give us understanding beyond what we can see and what we can know. And so often what he does is there will be a thread that is weaved together where God will speak uh, but he won't just speak to one person. And so we heard those words out of the grave that he's calling dead things to life in the worship song during our prayer time. Um, Christy had asked, uh, what's God speaking? And there were a number of words that were giving the thing that weighed in my heart, the prophetic word that I believe the Lord gave me for our church this morning and moving into the season is that he is calling, just as Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, that he is calling dead things to life in our lives, but not only that, he is specifically saying, come out of the, the place of death, but then remove the, the, the clothing, the, the cloths that identify you with that place of death. There was a two-part thing that Jesus did there. By the way, if you notice that Lynn had come up to me and spoken to me uh, during, during worship, uh, she was in our prayer, t- prayer time this morning. She comes up and goes, I just believe that God is telling us that uh, just like Lazarus, he's calling dead things to life. And that he's, and he's specifically saying that there are people waiting. There are people waiting for, th- for the Lord to call them out and say, I'm, I'm calling these areas and these things to life in your life. Uh, and, yeah, to life in your life. That's right. We don't want to ignore that. We don't want to just kind of press on with the morning and say, okay, well, we've got things to go. In fact, this all dovetails really well, perfectly, in fact, with the message that the Lord has for us, uh, not just today, but as we move into this new series. I want to speak over you, I believe, from the, the heart of the Lord is that there may be places in your life as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, where you know that he's called you to life. But there's still things that are wrapped around you and that things that you carry that, that identify with the old life, with death, and not with the new life that Christ has. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are supposed to put Christ on like a garment, which means we have to remove those things that identify the grave. We celebrated with those who were baptized last week who identified with Christ and his death and resurrection, moving from the old life and into the new. But we, we all daily need to examine our hearts and say, Lord, is there anything that I'm carrying that reeks? Lazarus had been dead for four days. There was a smell, right? His sister said it. Jesus, there's a smell. There's a bad smell. He's been dead so long. There's a smell that accompanies, there's a stench that accompanies death. And, and that we, as we walk our lives with the Lord, wouldn't be in a place where we're walking alive, but carrying with us the stench of the garments of death. Here's one of my favorite parts of that story when Jesus calls Lazarus out. By the way, Jesus doesn't go into the grave, right? He, he would do that later in his own life and then come to life. But he doesn't go into the grave. He calls Lazarus out. And he's bound. And so he must have come hopping out. Because he was bound around his legs and his arms. Kind of comical if you think about it. And then Jesus says this to the people around. Go and help him remove the garments. The, those, those burial clothes. And so we come to the Lord hearing his voice. Responding to his call to move from death into life. And that we would start removing those, those clothes, but we would also, in those cloths, but we would also come alongside of each other and, and partner with each other. This is one of the reasons why we need each other so much. God says, I will call you to help each other to remove those death cloths. I believe that word is, if not for all of us specifically, for some of us this morning, that maybe you came in and you, you could even identify and name maybe some of those places where there are things in your life that are not living. And God says, it's time. It's time. I'm calling the dead, dead things in your life to life. 
So let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for the faithfulness of your word. And God, that you would speak to us through song, through your word, and by your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for the word of prophecy, Lord, that would cut right to the heart. And Lord, I pray that as we come to the message this morning, that you would prepare us for everything you have. That we would not miss one iota, one little bit of your love, of your truth, of your transforming power. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are jumping into a new series this week entitled The Prosperous Soul. The Prosperous Soul. It was a few weeks ago that I shared a message entitled It Is Well. And it was intended to be kind of a one-time message. It was something the Lord had put, put on my heart. And, and that one-time message ended up uh, turning into what is now going to be a series that will take us through a number of weeks. I'd read out of Third John chapter 2, uh, where John is writing to his friend Gaius, and he says these words in verse 2 of Third John, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. That you may prosper in all things. If you want to prosper in all things, would you just raise your hand? Would you just agree with that? All right. That's at least most of us. All right. If you want to be in health, would you just raise your hand? All right. So we all agree. We want to be prospering in all things. <laughs> we want to be in health. But then he says these words, just as your soul prospers and he kind of reverses the order where he says you want to prosper in all things and be in health and he puts the soul prospering part at the end but what really he is saying is as your soul prospers you will prosper in all things and be in health it's a short verse he then goes on with the the rest of this letter which is a very short letter and you could almost read over this and just kind of gloss over it and go that sounds nice Yet this is so key to our experience and our walk with the Lord. Your soul is designed to prosper. And as it does, your life will prosper. Now I'm going to just interject something real quick. Prosperity and that word prosper kind of has a, I would say, a negative connotation in some church circles because for a long time there was a prosperity gospel and even still there's a prosperity gospel that gets preached where uh, God is, if you do certain things, God's just going to, right, you, he's just going to bring more money than you know what to do with. And, and this is not what I'm talking about. So if, that, if that's a point of hang up for you, just cast that aside. That's not where we're going. I'm not talking about prosperity. And if you just do certain things, and then God's just going to start mailing you checks. This is not, and we believe that God will provide, but but we're not going to strong arm God into doing what we want Him to do. This is this is much deeper than that. It's much deeper. I shared about Horatio Spafford, who wrote that hymn, "It Is Well with My Soul," and I'd read that whole. Uh, that whole hymn, and I shared about his story, how he'd experienced incredible loss in the Chicago fire, lost his business, lost a lot of his assets and his, his finances. He had a, a death of one of his children because of illness, and then his wife and his daughters crossing the Atlantic, going to Europe. He was delayed because of business, and that ship sank, and all of his daughters perished in that, in that accident. And when he crossed over to meet his wife in England, he, the captain of the ship let him know where the spot was when they came to the place where his daughters had perished. And it was in that place that he penned the words to that hymn, It is well with my soul. And I encourage you to look it up. I'm not going to read through it this morning. We don't, we don't have the time for that. But, but, but many of us are familiar with that. When sorrows like sea billows roll, right? Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say it is well with my soul. And we talked about the fact that here's a man experiencing incredible loss, devastating loss, loss beyond what many of us could ever fathom. Yet in this place, he says, it is well with my soul. And it sounds really good. And I left that Sunday uh, encouraged by the word of God and, and going, Lord, I want that. 
But I also found that there was kind of an unsettledness in my own heart, and even that next day and through that next week. Because there's a problem and there's a challenge that comes with making that statement or trying to think about, well, Lord, it is well with my soul. I posed the question. In fact, I said, is it well with your soul? I asked that question. And the thing that the Lord started impressing on me, just for myself, and I believe then also for us as a congregation, is do I know what that truly means? Do I understand what it means to prosper in my soul? And asking, am I prospering? And if I'm not prospering, why not? And, and how do I know if I'm prospering? And if I picture Horatio standing on the edge of that ship, peering into the ocean, penning those words and asking myself, would I be able to do that? And I think my, my, the answer for me in this moment in time is probably not. Because it doesn't take a, a whole lot to seem to set me in a tailspin. And so I became kind of bothered by my own question, even to our congregation, is your soul prospering? And God's going, you can't just throw out a question like that and then just walk away from it. And so gave birth to this series, The Prosperous Soul. And, and I heard the Lord say a couple of things um, in regards to this series. I, I like to plan this sermon series out in advance so I know kind of where we're headed as a congregation. I'll take time to pray and hear from the Lord and, you know, Lord, is this, what's the elements? What do you want to speak through this? And usually there's a start and an end time to a series. And I felt the Lord very clearly say, I want you to start this series, but not send an, set an end, end date. Part of the reason for that is that we as a, as a culture like to get things done. Right? I'm going to go through this and I'm going to do that. And then I have my to-do list. And we just kind of rush through things. And I believe the Lord wants us to, to do is take a little journey with him and not rush through understanding how our souls are designed to prosper. And we're going to take however many weeks it takes. And we're going to allow ourselves to sit at the feet of Jesus and allow him to speak to us in the midst of this. We like things to work, right? I like things to work. Um, if I go to, up to the, one of these in my house, we'll put a picture up here of a light switch, right? If I walk up to one of those and I flip it on, I expect something to happen, right? Hello? Yeah. Okay, good. A light's going to come on. A fan's going to turn on. Something's going to happen, right? Or if I do this, if I put the key in the ignition of my car and I turn it, I expect that there's going to be some sound, right? And some vibration. Something's going to let me know that this car is now running and ready to take me to where I need to go. Or maybe it's one of these. This week especially, right? I, I, I saw on Facebook friends of mine in LA who were out of power going, I woke up, it's nine o'clock in the morning, it's hundred and four degrees already, and the power is out, right? So it doesn't many, matter how many times you push that down arrow, right? Nothing's going to happen. We like things to work. We live in a world where stuff just works. We live in a, in a cultural context, in a first world nation where stuff just works. If I don't have what I need, I'll go find it. I'll go buy it, and I'll install it, or have someone else install it, and then it just needs to work, and the desire and the expectation and even the assumption that something will work. And then when it doesn't, right, we become inconvenienced, frustrated, distracted, and hot, <laughs> and even angry. Now, if I turn a light switch on and a light doesn't come on, that's an inconvenience. But, um, but it's maybe not that big of an inconvenience. If my car doesn't start, that's a bigger inconvenience, isn't it? Mostly because I know it's going to mean a lot more money than a light bulb being burned out. Or if it's 115 degrees out and you turn your air conditioning on and it doesn't work. Now, that's a whole other set of emotion. One of the ones that cracks me up a lot or amuses me is, um, is when people are on an airplane sitting at the gate and the pilot announces our flight's been delayed because of mechanical problems and they get angry. And I'm thinking, 
I'm, I'm grateful. I'm so thankful because the best place to figure out an airplane doesn't work is on the ground. Right? But we live in a culture where I am inconvenienced and I have places to go. And I'm like, you're alive. Hallelujah. But we go from calm to upset so quickly because we just expect things to work. And, and we really don't care about how things work. Most of us don't really care about the fact that when I turn on a light switch, it means that there is at a power station somewhere, electricity has been generated and, and fed through transmission lines that have gone through transformers to a substation and then divides it out to my house, goes through a transformer on a pole into my electrical box through a breaker down a wire into the light switch and that those connections need to be made and the power goes to a light bulb where whatever, the filament or if it's a, a fluorescent bulb that, that all the parts are working that that power then would it bring illumination. We don't care, we just need it to work, right? When I turn my ignition, that there's a signal that goes through the computer, right? Drawing electricity from the battery. It sends a signal to the spark plugs that they need to fire and the engine starts turning as the starter revolves and then gas and air is fed into the cylinder and the valves close and ignition happens, right? Most people don't care. Just make sure that it works. Yeah, and I'm a dork, I know these things. Most people don't care, right? That your thermostat, when you turn it on, that there's power that goes to that fan and there's enough coolant in the system that starts feeding through that will then blow into a blower motor through a condenser and feed coolant. We don't care. We just want it to work. The problem is, is when it stops working and we don't know how it works, it's a problem. It's a problem. Now, for most of these things, we have people. We have people, we have people who can come and fix all of those things in our lives. We, we call someone, we call a friend, we call a neighbor, we call a plumber or an electrician or a mechanic, come and fix this, it's not working and can you do it today, right? Can you do it today? The same is true of our lives. We just want everything to work. I just want my life to work. I want everything to, to work. I want everything to, to mesh well. I want to feel good because that's the priority, right? I just want to feel good. I want to be happy. And I want to have peace. And I, I want everyone around me to make me happy and no one to mess with my norm, with my status quo, with what's going on. I want my relationships to be free of any conflict or opposition. I don't want my boss to ask too much or too little of me. I just want everything right. I want my church to serve my needs, to answer my questions, to be there when I need it. No amens on that. I want my work to be satisfying and productive. I want people to do what I want them to do when I need them to do it. I just want my life to work. And when it doesn't, we become frustrated and angry and impatient. Amen? Oh, I know, I'm meddling. <laughs> Yet we don't understand so often how our very souls are wired. And while you can get away with not knowing how electricity gets into your house or how the process that starts your car, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot get away with not knowing how God has wired your very soul. Because your soul isn't someone else's responsibility. And so those places in our life where we walk through frustration and anger and we feel like we're hitting our head against the wall and God says, I'm inviting you to go deeper with me to understand how I fashioned you, how I've wired you, the things that, and the desires and the passions that I've put in you, what faith means in your life. I've designed all of these things to make sense in your life. But if you choose not to understand them, then you're going to be in a perpetual place of frustration and anger and disappointment. So it's important for us to even start by asking this question, what is the soul? What is the soul? Is it important? I mean, we've heard the word, right? Soul, food, soul, music. We talk about, right, the, the human soul. We talk about if some, you know, a ship uh, is sinking, the, the, the Coast Guard would say, well, how many souls on board? 
right? And so we're familiar with this word, but do we know what it really means? How does it affect my life? How do I care for my soul? By the way, if you don't know what your soul is, you're definitely not going to know how to care for it. And how do I even know if it's prospering or not? As believers, we read passages like Matthew 16, 26. Jesus says this, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If Jesus made statements about the soul that along these lines, we would recognize immediately this, this must be important, of utmost importance. But do I really understand what he's saying? Do I understand where he's going with this? The reality is this, that Jesus came to save your soul. It is your soul that engages with the Lord. It is, your soul is who you are. It's your being. It is yourself. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more, not just today, but over the last few weeks. By the way, I had to really fight, and I will have to fight through this series keeping my messages concise because I get excited and then I just want to cram it all into one sermon. So I spent more time taking stuff out of this message today than putting in. And, and, and here's why. This message today will serve as kind of an introduction to kind of a launching point, a launching pad into what I believe God wants to say to us. Not, that, not saying that there won't be any substance today because we're going to end with probably the most important part of understanding with our in regards to our soul. The soul in, in the Greek is translated psyche. It's the word where we get psychology or psychiatry. And it's the study of the self, including the mind, the brain, neurofunction and, and, and neurobiology and understanding how, those, how our, our brain chemistry affects our decision making and how we live. And, and right, if, if you're having struggles in your life, yeah, you might go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor who will help you process those things and, and unpack who you are and what's going on in your life. The soul is the part of you that connects your inner life to your outer life. You have both an outer life and an inner life. The outer life being what we all see. I, I see you're all sitting here today. I see that some people came in today and they had a smile on their face and some people didn't. That some of our body language communicates energy and excitement and some would say, you know, their body language would communicate uh, that they're downcast and maybe struggling. That's the outer life. It's the part that we see, but you also have an inner life that no one sees except for you and the Lord. And it's the part of you that wrestles and struggles. It's the part of you where decisions are made and priorities are set. Where dreams are dreams and hopes are hoped. And so your soul connects the inner life to the outer life. Professor and author Dallas Willard gives us a definition that helps me and I hope it will help you. I'm going to put it up on the screen. If you want to snap a picture of it, you're welcome to do that. He says this. What is running your life at any given moment is your soul. Not external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of human beings. The soul is the life center of human beings. And he says these three words, correlates, integrates, and enlivens. And those are three key terms. Now, this is a definition of the soul by, by one author, by one uh, theologian, one professor. By the way, Dallas Willard, read anything he's written. It's good. It will challenge you. It's deep. Um, an ama amazing man of faith who's since gone to be with the Lord, but an ama amazing, amazing follower of Jesus Christ. So this is just one aspect. You might have an, a diff different definition that you've read. I like this, and we're going to kind of run with this for, for our purposes, but, but understand that this is a lot bigger than even this one 
definition. These three words that he says correlates, integrates, and enlivens. It's these parts of our lives that are running our lives. And I like the fact that he says it's not even, it's not circumstances, thoughts, or intentions, and not even your feelings, but it's your soul. You see, your soul correlates. Correlation is this, it connects the different pieces together. It helps you understand what's happening internally and externally. Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling given the circumstances that I'm standing in? And how does this correlate with the word of God in my life if we're even asking that question because the reality is so often that's a secondary thought even in the life of believers. And so we have to understand that God wants to correlate all of these things. He he wants them to inform the aspects of our life internally and externally need to inform each other. And they do, whether you know it or not. The soul integrates. Integration and disintegration are currently major fields of study within psychology and psychiatry. Understanding the way that the brain is wired. A couple weeks ago, we watched the movie Inside Out. Anyone seen it? Right? So it's even making it to the big screen in cartoons. And that movie is really talking about integration. How does a person be both joyful and sad at the same time? That you can have both of these emotions and they don't oppose each other. That they actually integrate with each other. That we have a right brain and a left brain. That right, our, our, our one, one part of our brain is more creative and, and feeling and emotion. And the other part of our brain is more logic and, 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 and understanding and knowledge and and, and that some people tend to be more right brain and some people tend to be more left brain. And I'm the one that's more feeling and creative. So I don't remember which is which because it doesn't really matter to me. But for those of you that are more the knowledge, you probably, which side is it? Right brain. There we go. Yeah, all the right brainers are like, it's the right brain. Come on. And that, that even the right brain, left brain, that they're supposed to integrate with each other. You're not supposed to be either or. You're supposed to be both and because God's wired us that way it's our ability to integrate and connect the parts of our thinking and knowledge our feelings our relationships our faith our experience our hurts and failures our hopes and dreams and even our culture to each other understanding our family of origin where we've come from and how we've been shaped by our family of origin Right? The, the, the joke is always you go to see a psychiatrist and they say, well, tell me about your father. Tell me about your mother. But it's, the reality is it's accurate because our family of origin helps shape us. The way that we see the world, our worldview, our understanding of interpersonal relationships, what's expected of us. The cultural mores and norms of our, right? That we do things in, a, in, an, in our culture in the West that don't make sense in other cultures. Ice water in America doesn't make sense to other people in other cultures. It just doesn't. Why would you, first of all, drink a glass of water with dinner? And why would that glass be full of ice? It doesn't make sense to other cultures. But for us, it's just a norm. It's just the way things are. And so as we understand that all of these pieces need to be integrated into who we are and into the most important part is our faith. You have voices in your head, so do I. Don't pretend you don't, right? We all have voices that when we make decisions and when we look at the world around us, we hear voices. We hear voices from our past. We hear the voices of friends. We hear the voices of culture. We hear our own voices in there somewhere. And those voices then start dictating whether or not we do things. You ever found yourself in a place where you're about to do something, maybe bold, and at the last second you pull back because maybe there's a voice in your past that said, you know what, you can't do that. You're not good enough. You don't measure up, right? You don't have what it takes. And that voice then wins out over your will being able to follow through. I want to I say this right now, and this will be a, a key anchor point As believers, our primary goal is this, that the voice of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God 
would drown out every other voice. That as believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus Christ, for us to live integrated lives in an integrated faith, that the voice of Jesus has to be the most important voice in my life. It doesn't matter, (coughs) excuse me, it doesn't mean that those other voices don't even have a place. As a father, I want to I have a, a voice in my kid's life that would bring them uh, a, a encouragement and growth. And I know as a dad, my voice is important. But the bigger thing that I want to do as a dad is teach my kids to hear the voice of God. And so that that voice then becomes the key voice. But if you live in a disintegrated life where the parts of your life don't mesh and they don't connect, you will not live an integrated faith. That it's so key for us to take who God is in our lives and his word in our lives and make it a part of everything we are. It's, I believe it's one of the biggest challenges facing the church globally, but especially here in the West because we like things just to work. We just want it to work. And I don't want to have to think about a whole lot about how it works. Thank you, Lynn. I just want it to work. And so integration is so key. We're going to talk about that, by the way. I could get stuck here, but we're going to move on. And then he says it enlivens. The soul gives meaning and value and purpose and understanding. It's the soul that connects us in life-giving relationship to God and to other people. Understanding that our souls can be broken. That our souls can be damaged. And as they are, our ability to have life-giving relationship. To live in community with people, not just in proximity with people. To be connected to God and to people in a way that gives life to us, but also pours life into them. That when our souls are broken and fractured and disintegrated, that we struggle in that. That we struggle. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 through 31. Jesus as having an encounter with some teachers of the law. It says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answer Jesus is this, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to stop there for a second. That the Lord is one. You know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three components of the Trinity are three, but they are one. God is integrated. He is not fractured. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully integrated and live integrated with each other in such a way that is a blessing to us. And when God says that we are designed in his image, that we are fashioned in his image, and that he breathes his life into our nostrils, that that life breath that he breathed into us, and then, and then this, this being that was formed out of the dust of the earth came to life, and he said, I've created you in my image. Part of that image is that we would be integrated just as the, the Trinity is integrated, that God is one. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And in fact, in another passage, he says, all of the law and the prophets hinge on this. In other words, if we get this, if we understand that every part, our thinking, our soul, our emotions, our strength, our mind, our body, every part of us, if every part of who we are loves God and is in, an, in a perfect relationship with him, and it's evidenced in the way that we love people, then we won't need anything else. That's it. We won't need all of the scriptures that tell us how to live and what to do. If we can just get this right, Jesus said this is so key to who we are. Do you see how when Jesus says what's the greatest command or He makes the declaration with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. 
He doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your intellect. That the goal is just to know more about God. That's it. In fact, that's what they were doing. That's what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were doing. They knew all kinds of things about God, but they were not walking in relationship. And so Jesus says that we need to be, our souls need to be fully correlating and integrating and enlivened by a relationship with God that encompasses our heart, our emotions, our passions, our desires, our mind, our strength, our body, every part, our will. And as our soul encompasses all of those, we would then walk with him in life-giving relationship. In our culture and in our world, we've seen a shift from community and family and most importantly, faith to self. To self. I and me. We say things like this, if, if you're empty, you need to fulfill yourself. <clears throat> if you're stressed, Learn how to take care of yourself. If you're on a job interview, you have to believe in yourself. You must learn to express yourself. If someone dares to criticize you, you have to love yourself. If you're not getting your own way, you need to stand up for yourself. What should you be on a date? You, should, you ought to be yourself. But listen to this. What if yourself is a train wreck? What do you do then? What if yourself is fractured and broken and disintegrated and not correlating and definitely not alive? Well, the word tells us just try harder. Read another book. Go to, go to a, a lecturer, right? Just go on a vacation. That'll help. What if the self is a train wreck? You, you can't help yourself. And as we've moved away from community and family and faith and being isolated, we know more and we understand more than we've ever understood and known in the history of the world. Yet I know this, people who are at the top of their game are lonely and isolated and broken. Just a few miles down the 210 freeway in Hollywood, and Beverly Hills, people we hear about in the news, and this is not just them, but it's a great example. People who are making millions and millions and millions of dollars who have reached the peak of their careers in, in the entertainment world are known all over the world who are depressed and even taking their own lives. Why? Because their self is broken. And the world says, well, if you just accumulate more and if you understand more, if you have more knowledge, if you just gather more, if you have more friends or more people know your name, then, then you'll be okay. But we're seeing the exact opposite to be true. That we have things in technology that seem to be connecting us with people, yet we feel more isolated than we've ever felt in the history of the world. I can know what's going on around the world in a fraction of a second, yet... I'm lonely. Why? Because our self is broken. And then we tell that self, well, you've just got to figure it out. Tell yourself you're okay. Saturday Night Live, some of you will remember the sketch. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. A doggone it. People like me. If only it were that simple. But our souls are not wired for self. They're wired for community. Our souls are wired to be in relationship with God and relationship with people. And not just part, not just the bits that I want people to see. Why is it that even believers can go to church, read the Bible off and on, kind of, sort of, maybe uh, once a week. <laughs> no scriptures, memorize scriptures, yet my marriage is falling apart. I'm unsatisfied and unhappy in my work. I don't seem like I can get ahead. I'm depressed. Why is this a reality? Why is this happening in the church? Because our souls are broken. That our souls are not prospering. And so we need to make it a priority in our lives to press in and say, God, I want my soul to prosper. I want everything in my life to prosper. I want my relationships to prosper. I want my health to prosper. 
So God, help me understand where that prosperity comes from, what that looks like. The author and pastor John Ortberg says this, the soul is the capacity to integrate all the parts into a single whole life. It is something like a program that runs a computer. You don't usually notice it unless it, unless it messes up. If, if everything's working, everything's great. But as soon as something breaks, now we're keenly aware of the thing that's not working. And it's usually someone else's fault. I know, no amens on that either. We have to stop. We have to examine. We have to understand. The Apostle Paul gives us a great example of this tension that exists inside of us. In Romans chapter 17, he says this in verse 15. Romans chapter 7, rather, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. Amen? Come on. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do not, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. (laughs) Right? Come on, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it helps me know that I'm, I'm normal. If, if the Apostle Paul dealt with this, I'm like, hallelujah, there's hope. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Now, let me insert a word of caution right here. The goal of the Christian life is not sin management, The goal of the Christian life and a prospering soul is not to sin less. It's for sin to be removed. And you do not possess the capacity and the ability and the sheer willpower to do it. If you did, you would have already done it. But we haven't, not one of us. Because we're all like Paul going, I don't understand what I do. And we do things, we, we make decisions every day. We say things to our kids and to our spouses and to people in the grocery store. And we get attitudes and upset. Guy cut me off on the freeway yesterday. And man, that sin nature was just right there. Because you inconvenienced me. I will be, you know, a hundred, hundredth of a second later than I was going to be. It's right there. I don't understand what I do. That we have this battle that wages within inside of us in our inner man. And then we try and live an external life, an external existence that's supposed to match the turmoil what's going on inside. And so you know what we have to do? We fake it. We fake it. We go through our lives and our days and people going, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. But not really. And we come to church, the one place where we should be able to go and someone come up and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, I'm really struggling internally right now. But the problem is, is that when we ask that question, how are you doing? You're kind of hoping, don't tell me how you're really doing because I'm kind of barely hanging on right now. And I don't want you to really ask me how I'm doing because then I have to lie to you. And then I just lied and that's a sin. And do you see like how it just cascades? God goes, no, no, no. This is not how I've designed. That's not a prosperous soul. That's not thriving in Christ. Contrast what Paul writes there to this next thing he writes in Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to, be in pl- to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, all this, through him 
who gives me strength. Same guy, different stages of his life. Having walked with Jesus for a longer amount of time, knowing what it means to be in need and in want. Paul talks about being shipwrecked and beaten multiple times, stoned to the point of death, imprisoned, falsely accused. I know what this is like. And I know what it's like to have plenty, to be blessed, to have enough for things to just work. I know what it means, but I've, le- I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret. And he's telling us, how cool is that? Paul just shares the secret with us. I can do all things through him. All this. Through him, it gives me strength. When Paul says, I can do all, what he's saying is every part of my life, my integrated self, my soul, my inner man and my outer man, my thinking, my emotions, my family relationships, the voices in my head, the call on my life, I can do all this, all of it. How? Through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus Jesus' voice has become the only voice in Paul's life. The only thing that matters. Over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at how God has wired our soul. We're going to talk about the, the fact that our souls are needy. Your soul is needy in a good way. Your, soul, your soul's need for God. We're going to talk about the soul's need to know God. We're going to talk about the soul's need for rest. One of the greatest challenges facing us today in the church and in our culture is that we go, 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 and we never stop to rest. That Sabbath has no place. God says, I even rested. I worked for six days and then I rested. How much more do we need to rest? The souls need to worship. The souls need for discipline. And don't check out at that one. Your soul needs discipline, spiritual disciplines. In fact, Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Get it. Read it. Allow it to challenge you. Rock your world. Discipline of being in the word daily. Because you have to hear the voice of God in order to obey the voice of God. You have to to hear his voice more than you hear the other voices. Otherwise, the other voices will win. Spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and worship. We cannot neglect these parts of of building our soul and our soul's need for connection along with a whole myriad of other things. Your soul is needy. It needs to find the same thing that Paul found. I've discovered the secret. And the secret's not so secret. I want to close with this this morning. Yours is a soul worth saving. Yours is a soul worth saving. For this reason, Jesus came. For this reason, God stepped out of heaven and into humanity, taking on flesh. Why? Because your soul was worth saving that God desired to be in reconciled relationship with you. There is no greater expression of value in our lives than that. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, in our broken, fractured, disintegrated, messy, sinful, can't help myself state, At that moment in time, Christ died for us. Why? 
because you are a soul worth saving. That your soul is of immeasurable worth to God. And that's where we need to begin our journey. That the world would say that you don't matter, you don't count, you're just one of seven billion. And God would declare over you, you are worth saving. You are my masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Can we stand together as the worship team comes forward? started this morning by sharing about Lazarus and the grave clothes. Some of the grave clothes that we bear on our very souls are the words that have been spoken over us, the declarations that have been made to us, and the things that we've assumed about ourselves, the could'ves, the should'ves, the, the shouldn't, the won't, the absolute statements that are absolutely false. That God would declare over you that you are of immeasurable worth and that those words do not hold up in the light of his love. And so, Father, this morning as we begin this journey in understanding what it means for our souls to prosper, that we would have an encounter with you even now in this moment. As we close with this final song this morning, Lord, as we sing these words, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be attentive and attuned to what you want to speak, what you want to declare over us, that the world around us would fade away, that the voices and the confusion and the things that are broken and the things that frustrate us, God, that those things would fade away, that they would be removed by the power of your mighty hand. And that we would hear this morning your declaration of love over each one of our lives. Your declaration of value over each life, over each marriage, over each child. That we wouldn't miss a single thing. And we'll give you all the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.